0: Hi there, esteemed audience, and welcome to another episode of Middle Grade Ninja. I'm your host, Rob Kent. As you know, I'm the author of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, the greatest novel ever written. And great news, the greatest novel ever written is available as an audiobook, a paperback, and the ebook is free, free to download whenever you're watching or listening to us, wherever fine ebooks are sold. Rob, I hear you saying, how can you possibly survive if you give your book away? Don't you worry about me, esteemed audience. As soon as you get hooked on the series, I'm gonna charge you cash money for books two and three. We're gonna have a good time. I've also got horror novels available under the name Robert Kent. For more information on all of that, uh, plus interviews with literary agents, editors, authors, everyone in this world who is great, go to middlegradeninja.com. You get the whole back catalog of the show and more. Uh, And there's no time. My God, we've got to get to our guest. Alda P. Dobbs is here. Uh, Alda, how are you this evening?
1: Good, how are you? Thank you for I, having me. here. I'm very, I'm I've been hearing you for, for many years. And, Volly, I can't believe I'm here to bring some truth. <laughs> Thank you.
0: Is it uh, everything you thought it would be? <laughs> so far. <laughs> so far, we're doing all right. A few seconds in. <laughs> Quality control. Yeah. Um, Well, if you've uh, been listening, then you know that I never summarize anybody else's biography and anybody else's book, and that's how I make sure I maintain friends in the industry. Uh, So the best place to start is always, if you would, give uh, esteemed audience kind of an overview of your background.
1: Sure. So I was born in Mexico, then I moved to the States when I was a, a really young kid, and I started school not speaking a word of English. And it took a while, uh, English is so difficult, it took a while for me to learn it. I was about, uh, it took me about four or five years. So I was about 10 or 11 when I started getting a grasp of the language, but I always had the, that uh, love-hate relationship with English, um, so I was a reluctant reader. I was kind of upset that I wouldn't fully understand it and, and, um, and I wanted to read in Spanish, but there was no, no books in Spanish. So it was always that love-hate, but I had love storytelling. And I wanted to be a storyteller because I always loved hearing stories from my family. And uh, so I had that in my head that I wanted to be a storyteller or a writer. And once I got to high school, I remember uh, taking the bus home from work. It was late night. I was riding the bus uh, back home and um, tired as heck. And I remember looking beside me and somebody had left a book behind. And I wondered what what book it was. So I picked it up, saw the orange cover, and it was uh, Catching the Ride. And I was like, oh, my goodness, what sounds interesting. It sounds like like an old book, and it looked tattered and whatnot. So I remember I started reading it on the bus, and I just, I was hooked. I got home, and I remember I didn't even eat. I went straight, you know, to the living room. I just started reading it and reading it and read the whole book in one sitting. I was just so enthralled by it, and I could not believe it. I just, there was so much magic in in that book. And I figured, you know what, I want to do this one day. And um, so when I got to college and uh, took my placement test, I bombed the English <laughs> test and got, ended up getting remedial. So I figured, you know what, that's a sign. I'm not meant to be a, a writer. Put that in the back burner and I uh, pursued uh, studies in physics and engineering. Got those degrees, worked in an engineering firm, but I still had that fire burning about being a writer. And finally, 10 years ago, we uh, lived in Italy and that's when, I mean, everything was so inspiring around me there and I figured, you know what, this is it, I'm going to start writing. And that was 10 years ago, so now I have my first book coming out and that's that's pretty much my background. (laughs)
0: I'm trying to figure out if that's a good thing or a bad thing to start with, Catcher in the Rye. Mm -hmm. On the one hand, if it's not that great, then I guess you don't maybe maybe you don't get hooked if it's just uh, just a standard not so great James Patterson novel. Yeah. Maybe it's not that great. On the other hand, when you start with Catcher in the Rye, then whatever the next book you pick up, unless it's unless it's Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, is probably gonna be a letdown.
1: <laughs> no. <laughs> no. No, it, it was I was amazed. I was just blown away. Yeah, till this day, I, I read that book and I still get chills.
0: So I've got all kinds of uh, questions for you. Uh, I guess let's start with this idea that you didn't speak English uh, until uh, until what you were you started kindergarten, but it still took almost five years for you to speak English. Then you go to you're you're in college and you get placed in remedial English (laughs) uh, for a while. So how does that improve? I know that you what you took two years of Latin and one year of German, and that. That helped improve your language.
1: Oh my goodness! Yeah, I remember I signed up for Latin, and uh, the first day of class we went in, and I remember the the Latin teacher looking at all of the class, all of the students, and she said, "Okay, for the first six weeks, I'm not going to teach you Latin this semester," and we all kind of gave her gave her a baffled look. She said, "I'm going to teach you English <laughs> the first six weeks," and I. And I thought she was talking to me, so I turned back and I realized I'm the only Mexican in the classroom. I'm like, okay, then she's probably not not talking to me. I'm surprised she's talking to the whole classroom. And she said that, she's like, I assure you that none of you in this classroom speak English correctly or know how to the proper use of the language. And I can't teach you a second language unless you know you dominate one of them. So for those six weeks, it was like boot camp, English boot camp. It was just you know everything and in all about English and in those six weeks I learned more than I had throughout my middle school and high school so I my confidence in English just increased tremendously and then I took German and that reinforced a lot of the learning and when I joined the military too just being amongst other people and speaking more English and whatnot and uh and for the longest time now that I Write for children. Looking back, I I realized I had applied to so many scholarships and fellowships and grants and whatnot. So all along, I've been a writer, and uh, so it's it was just a confidence in me, you know, whether I had that confidence in the language to say, take authority and say, no, I will tell a story because I feel that I could tell it, you know. So more than anything, more than learning English itself, was just a confidence.
0: So obviously, uh, you, you've mastered uh, the language at this point because I've, I've just enjoyed your novel. I've been poking around your your website, uh, and um, how? When did you feel confident that okay, now I've got it. I I can I can maybe pursue writing a book in English as a serious pursuit.
1: I think I started when ten years ago. I started writing and I had no idea, you know, what how to start. And when I, I had read a lot of children's books. But this time I started reading them differently, okay, I said, let me break it down, see how scenes are, are written and uh, kind of, I guess it's a science background in me. Uh, you dissect, you know, a, a specimen or you break down the sur- structure of buildings, you find out how it's made or chemically, <laughs> molecule, see how a, a certain element is made or a certain uh, molecule check the elements and I figured okay I could do this with writing too let me break down each scene each paragraph each sentence why does it flow this way or why did the author use this character in this manner so I I mean I delved into all these middle grade books and little by little I started getting confidence about writing my own stories and yeah definitely the first manuscript I wrote it's it's something I was still learning to, uh, to do, to had to master the whole story, narrative and arc and whatnot. And that's okay, you know, because I learned and I put it in the drawer and, and it's sitting there right now, hopefully one day it'll see the, the day of light. But after that, I said, okay, let me get my experience with articles, magazine articles. So I started uh, submitting to articles, uh, magazines and newspapers, and I started getting published. And then when Highlights bought one story, that's when I said, okay, because that was my goal for children to be able to have that voice and when Highlights bought the article and published it that's when I said okay I think I'm getting somewhere and writing more uh, this book when I started writing this book that's also when I realized when I took it to conferences for critiques and I started getting positive feedback like with that first manuscript this time I was getting uh, more okay. Let me see it. Keep in touch, and that's when I knew okay, I'm getting somewhere now. So that's that's how I sensed it that okay, I the confidence started growing and and uh, and especially in the English language. So that's how I think I found out.
0: <laughs> but, but ten years ago, are uh, you still working your day job at that point as an engineer?
1: Yes. Uh-huh.
0: And you're about to have the first of your two children.
1: Uh, Yeah, that was uh, right before I had kids, Uh, during, it was 2009 when uh, the recession, 2008 recession was hitting still kind of hard, and they were threatening with pink slips (laughs) every, every month they kept threatening with pink slips and pink slips, and, and at that point I was still living in Texas, so luckily we moved to Italy, and, 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 right as I started looking for a job in Italy that's when I said okay let me let me try this writing gig and uh and I there was the jobs in engineering were kind of a few far in between and I did find a a job in uh, as a pre-k teacher at a Montessori school in Italy at a NATO base of all places and it was such a great experience because I got to be with kids and I saw their reactions. And once again, and I didn't have kids myself at that time. So I think it was, you know, a godsend to be there and experience that. And of course, later on I had children and that that helps a lot too.
0: You think that's what um directed you toward writing for children or had you decided prior to that when did you decide that writing for children is the is where you want to be or have you decided that is this a stepping stone to your 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 romance career or whatever <laughs>
1: you No, know, when I was 19 I that's the first time I remember um feeling that that I wanted to write for children I don't know what it was I I think seeing uh, nature I used to I've always loved nature and uh Seeing certain animals and whatnot, I started getting these anthropomorphic uh, stories in my head and the voices and whatnot. So I, I, I think I've always wanted that, and I've always been attracted to children's literature as well.
0: Gotcha. And what are some of your favorite books uh, for for children? from back in, from when did you first start reading children's books? If you're starting with Catcher in the Rye. Catching
1: the Ride, then I started reading um, like Wrinkle in Time, that that became a favorite of mine, and uh, Bridge to Terabithia, Uh, that one, oh my goodness, I was, I read that one a lot of times, and uh, Charlotte's Web, and uh, anything by E.B. White, uh, I loved it, and then of course, later on, Katie Camillo, anything she wrote, and then I started reading uh, Avi, in all his books, uh, the Poppy Seed uh, series. I just, it was a Poppy the series I was great and Crispin. And, and uh, so I've always liked the classics a lot, but um, I, I love the modern uh, books as well, they're coming out. And, uh, but a lot of the, I, I stick to the classics just because I, I love the style. And, but, but there's a lot of uh, contemporary too that I, I've enjoyed too.
0: You had the opportunity to meet Avi, didn't you?
1: I did. <laughs> I did. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I, I was at a conference, an SCPWI conference in uh, in Colorado. And uh, it was one of my first ones. You know, I'm still nervous. You know, I don't talk to anyone. I'm quiet. I'm in the back tables. And uh, it was a Saturday, so college football was going on. And I figured I'd sneak out and go... Go catch the score of the uh, the Alabama game. <laughs> and, uh, so I'm sitting in the bar there, looking at the game, and um, somebody behind me asks what the what the score was. And I remember turning, and it was Avi. He's standing there and asking me <laughs> what the football score is. And I I remember I kind of got lost and trembled, and I I gave him the score, and um, and I told. And he stood there and, and looking at the game. I told myself, okay, you have one of the greatest writers here, what, ask him something, you know, don't miss this opportunity. And um, so finally, I turned to him and I said, I, what's the best advice you could give me as a new writer? What if you could give me only one piece of advice, advisor, would it be? And he turned and looked at me and said, well, do you want to make it a career? Yes or no? And I said, yeah, I, I'd love to make it a career. He said, then get an agent. And I said, really? He said, yeah, If you just want to write one book or two. I'd say you're don't don't bother, but if you want to make it a career, then get an agent. And I said okay, all right. So his words changed. You know, at least gave me guidance because I was so lost. I didn't know if I should go the agent route, the publishing, and small press, or whatnot. And at that point, those words really solidified a lot of the notions. That I didn't know what what to do. It kind of gave me a lot of guidance. So I always uh, thank him for that.
0: Ah, this seems like a good opportunity to shamelessly plug episode 64, esteemed audience. There have been many out-of-body experiences on this show, but episode 64, I talked to Avi, and you can see it on my face if you watch us on YouTube. I'm just a little bit shocked for at least the first hour of that conversation. Like, really? Avi's here? Really? That's crazy. This is a dream I'm having. I'm going to wake up and then what a nice dream it will have been. But no, anytime I I question, did that happen in reality? I can go check episode 64 and sure enough, there's (laughs) (laughs) Wow. So, okay. Um, you get involved and I get the sense that you don't come to anything lightly. One doesn't just become an engineer because it's the path of least resistance. (laughs) One doesn't go to the Air Force. Uh, In fact, let's let's start there. What does being an engineer and your time with the Air Force bring to your writing career? Does that give you a level of discipline from which to begin and form regular habits?
1: Yes, it does yeah, give me a sort of a discipline, but more than anything, it's just the, the exposure I had of cultures, of different cultures. I, the first time I was born in Mexico, of course, and moved to Texas, but when I joined the military, that was the first time I, I left Texas, and uh, I remember my first duty station was Mississippi, Biloxi, and I was so enamored with the trees, I, I remember I had my, uh portable was, was disposable coda cameras and I was just snapping pictures of the trees just because I thought they were so beautiful. i would never seen trees like that and Cajun. I didn't know what Cajun was. I didn't know what gumbo was and, and all these foods and, and traditions and cultures and I was mesmerized. And that was just the Lexi Mississippi. <laughs> so I was just like oh my goodness what's out there you know and, and then luckily I was so fortunate I got sent to Germany and that was another Opening for me, you know, to actually speak German with Germans, and and uh, not in, in college, and uh, and experience other European countries and other cultures, and just embracing all these cultures, and and the same thing with engineering, I was able to travel a lot, and uh, I was able to do one year, and uh, I think it was a few months. I think it was seven, eight months over in uh, New Zealand. I got to live there, and the project I was working in was in Australia, so I got sent to Australia several times. And and again, that exposure to cultures, different cultures, different ways of seeing the world, I I love that. And I think a lot of that comes out in my writing, just the fact that I wanna find the the connection, how we are all connected. And uh, that's what I aim with my, my writing all the time, trying to find that correlation between us all, that we're all human and we're all in some form or fashion connected.
0: Out of curiosity, how many languages do you speak at this point?
1: Oh my goodness, I one only. <laughs> I think I've forgotten most of them by now. <laughs> I kind of speak English, not too well. No, I speak Spanish, but you do. If you don't use them, you do lose them. Because when I was in Italy, I wasn't speaking Spanish. And I was amazed how quickly, you know, that I started uh, going away. I would come home and my family and my sisters would argue with me. And I couldn't keep up arguing in Spanish. So they were just speaking so fast, but now I I practiced with my kids. I speak Spanish to them, so it came back again. And uh, so English and German, I used to be able to speak it a little bit more. Now I could read it and understand it, but I, my tongue doesn't sound <laughs> as good anymore. Italian, I was able to pick up Italian just because it's so similar to the Spanish, and uh, the same thing. I could read it really well and understand it, but the speaking part, I'm I'm losing it. But it took me a while uh, to with Italian because for the longest time I thought I was speaking Italian because we were living in Naples, Italy and uh, when I left Naples to go to other places in Italy I noticed that they wouldn't understand me but uh, it was because uh, they told me later on I came to find out that I was speaking Napolitano which is a dialect to (laughs) Naples and it's not Italian, you know, right away they would let me know, no, no, you're not speaking Italian, you're speaking Napolitano. So, which I enjoy, I love Napolitano and I love the culture of Naples. And uh, so yeah, later on I picked up Italian, but yeah, my, my heart's always gonna be in Naples.
0: I was just thinking that over the uh, past year, year and a half, however, time has no meaning anymore. However long we've been uh, in some version of, of quarantine or lockdown, if I hadn't had this podcast, I might have forgotten to speak a language. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wanted to ask also about when you, when you get started, I know you get involved with the Society of Children's Book, uh, Writers and Illustrators, uh, pretty early on. Uh, and then you won multiple awards. I think it was, uh, I saw 12 honors and awards listed things like the Sustainable Arts Foundation grant, amplifying uh, the Unsung Voices scholarship, uh, and just on and on with, with awards and with grants. Um, how did you get started seeking those out? And how did those aid you in getting started uh, writing?
1: I think the, I started the, Since I was in college, probably every time I like when I was in physics, I would do searches for scholarships in physics or sciences and stuff like that. And I got in that habit to because I needed the money. (laughs) I was poor, I was broke. So I always needed money. So I was always trying to find scholarships and opportunities. And so I, I started learning how to apply for those. And also for once I was going to go into grad school, I applied for uh, grants and I had the National Science Foundation Homeland Security grants that uh, were awarded. And that's when I started getting more confidence that yes, I could do this. And when I started writing, I figured there was, somebody told me about the grants and whatnot through conferences, I would learn about them. But I didn't feel the confidence. I said, okay, wait, I got to learn how to write, you know, better or, or uh, feel because um, a lot of times they sh- they want to know that you're dedicated that you're you are serious about that profession. So I gave myself some time and a couple of years and once I had manuscript I would submit part of that manuscript you know because they ask you the first 20-30 pages and you have to fill out an artist statement and a a proposal sometimes and a cover letter or cv and I would submit that whole packet and honestly the first year or two I would not get anything I wouldn't even hear back from them but you keep trying you keep trying and keep trying and you start getting better then I started getting hang of it that I had to be more creative uh, in the language of my proposals because I was trying to be more engineering you know analytical and whatnot and that doesn't work in the art so I had to be more I know how to pitch the stories know how to pitch uh, my proposals and whatnot so once I learned that and I was able to write better as well, have better sample pages, and show that I've been published in magazines or newspapers that weigh more heavy. And once you get one award, that carries on to the next one, and the next one, and the next one. And before you know it, you start accumulating things. But it does take patience and a lot of, you know, work that you're going to do it over in, in a thick skin. Because, you know, like I said, the first couple of years, I didn't get any, any, uh, Awards, and even now, to this day, I apply to a lot of them, and half of them turn me down. So, and it's something you just gotta eh, just brush off and apply the next one. You know, just move on.
0: Well, you did a lot of a lot of people don't. Uh, we haven't even gotten to the part where you start querying and uh, looking for, <laughs> for agents and editors. So those first couple of years, while you're not getting anything, what is it that keeps you going and keeps you applying to get better?
1: There's a, well, I'm hard-headed, <laughs> as, my, as I've been told by a lot of people, but uh, I think what kept me going is the, the passion I had for the story, and the first one, the manuscript I first had, I, I I knew that was a story that had been burning inside me since I was 19, you know, and here you are 30 years, I'm sorry, 20 years, like, I don't want to make myself that old, 20 years later, and I'm trying to you know get the story out of, out of my heart and you know of course like I said I had to put that one away but then my passion I, every time I had a new project for instance the articles the one for highlights I said okay this is a it was a competition back then they used to have a, a competition for articles and I put all my heart to that one article and it didn't win <laughs> but that's okay you know I got the rejection letter that thank you for participating but you didn't win so once I started writing that article. I put all my heart into it and I said, okay, I got to take this serious. And I didn't win, but it was bought later on. And, and it took another two years to get it published. So it, everything's, you know, slow. So that's why you got to have a lot of patience. So I started with, with articles. And then when I got the idea of barefoot dreams of Petroluna, that was a family story. And like I tell young writers or writers that are starting out is that you gotta have a lot of passion for that story because it's gonna take you a while. And there's gonna be times you just wanna quit when you get rejection after rejection. But if you have that much passion into it, you know, you're know you gonna fight through it and, and, and you could take breaks. You could put it away for, for a bit, come back to it. But it's that passion that's gonna drive you to, to get to the finish line.
0: 2013 you write that article for highlights and that gets you to start thinking maybe there's a full book here um what's that process like when you when you start imagining petroluna and how long does it take you to get some kind of manuscript together
1: for this one i wrote the article and i have a seven-year-old son i was i was pregnant with him when i started writing it and uh i remember writing the article and doing the research behind it to see if it might family story was actually true or not. And when I found all the details that in fact it had happened and and to realize that the the details of the strife and the turmoil my my great-grandmother had endured were actually true. That's when I figured, you know what, this has to be more than an article. So I turned it into a picture book. So I had my picture book. It was 1500 words and it was a humongous picture book. And I took it to conferences and uh, people would say, oh, no, this is too long. The voice doesn't sing well and whatnot. So finally, I took it to one. I kept practicing, trying to make it better. I took it to another conference uh, a year later. And uh, yeah, it was a year later. And uh, a agent told me uh, she wanted to see the whole thing. And I said, well, you're holding the whole thing. I said, it's a picture book. And she said, Oh, really? And she said, Well, oh, I thought it was a middle grade novel. And I said, No, it's, it's a picture book. She said, Oh, no, you have to turn this into a, a novel. I want to see what happens to the character before and after this, this scene. And I said, Okay, all right, I'll, I'll have it in about a year for you. <laughs> you know, I don't want to lose touch, touch base with her. And she said, No, no, no. And she said, Take your time. It's going to take you a while. And uh, yeah, it's, she was absolutely right. It took me another five years, you know, with the research and the writing. And of course I had uh, two small kids, but um, it, it morphed from a picture book to a middle grade novel. And uh, it, ended, it ended up being this huge manuscript that I submitted to an agent and it got split to two books. So There's was actually two books I had been working on, luckily. And uh, so Barefoot Dreams of Petroleum is book one, that follows Petroluna in Mexico and book two, which is coming out next year, uh, follows Petroluna uh, in the United States. So you never know, you know, you start out an article thinking, you know, it's just gonna be an article, but if you pay attention and you have that drive and that passion, it might morph, you know, into a picture book or a middle grade, so.
0: Can we give that agent uh, credit? What was the agent's name?
1: Yes, her name uh, is Lawrence, Trisha, Trisha Lawrence. She's with uh, Erin Murphy. Yeah, she she was fabulous. She was fantastic.
0: And Miss Lawrence, if you're listening, you're welcome on the show anytime, of course. (laughs) Um, And the second book comes out next year. Do we have a final title on that one yet?
1: I think they told me today. uh, I think we're still debating with it, but it might be called On the Other Side of the River, I think. (laughs) don't quote me yet but I think that's what it may be
0: and that'll be out uh, right around September next year is the plan
1: yeah that's a plan right now we're working on the edits and uh yeah we're pushing for September next year
0: excellent um so one more question about getting uh published and then we'll we'll talk about the book in in full earnest uh Barefoot Dreams of, of Petrolona available everywhere esteemed audience my god you could be pulling it up while we're talking and purchasing your copy, securing it from the library, however you want to get your hands on this thing. So, uh, how do you go about finding your literary agent, or do you find an editor first and then a literary agent?
1: For me, I we moved a lot, so I I uh, couldn't get a critique group. I, I would try to find critique partners and whatnot, and. and you know every time we moved they were established already so it was really difficult to find one we get as soon as I found one we moved so it was difficult so finally my, my husband became my my critique partner and uh he's uh, an officer in the army so if he doesn't sugarcoat anything you know he he'll tell me he's <laughs> straight up the way it is so I like that that helped my manuscript a lot to put it in shape and after I felt like I said I went to a lot of um uh, conferences to get it get feedback. And from there, you know, I kept shaping it. And then I was lucky to uh, have participated in two mentorship programs. So I had a mentor in Colorado, uh, who it was through uh, SCBWI as well. And then I had another one here in, in Houston. And both of them were tremendous, they would read my manuscript and give me feedback. So that even guided the, the manuscript into shape. And uh, after that, I had one uh, beta reader uh, read one part of the story and uh she's the one that gave it her blessing. Laura Riesel she's an author, a children's book author as well. Great, great, great author. And uh, she gave me the gave it her blessing. And then that's when I I send it over to uh Joan Paquette at Erin Murphy. I had met Joan three years before and uh she and I stayed in touch and, and I submitted to her when I thought it it was ready. And uh there was was December of um 2019, so you can imagine, you know, everything's happy, happy days, you know, in 2019, and uh, uh, little did we know, things were about to change a lot, so that's when I, I submitted it to Joan, and then she bought it within a month, you know, she read it, and, and we signed the contract in, in December,
0: and you met her originally at a conference.
1: I met her, yeah, I, I'd heard from some friends that she was really, really good, so I made it a point to find her, and, uh, and meet her. So I, back in the day, um, bonacarter.com, she had a website that would list uh, different um, conferences and where agents would be at and whatnot. So I, I was, oh my goodness, I was hooked on that website. So I followed different agents and Joan Piquet was one of them. she had um, a conference coming up. Uh, this was in 2016 at, uh, in Maine. It's called um, Agents and Editors. I believe for editors and agents, agents and editors. It's in Maine, it's a small conference. So that's what I liked about it. It's very intimate and you get to spend, I think it's half a day with an agent. Um, when you're with other five writers, but it's very intimate because you get to talk to them a lot and they, they give you feedback right away on the first 20, 25 pages of your manuscript. And, and uh, we connected then and there and, and we're in touch uh, with each other ever since
0: so how do you uh, stay in touch without being awkward? <laughs> what does that look like?
1: Yeah, no, uh, I would uh, email her, you know, because uh, I didn't want her to forget me. You know, it was taking me so long. So during holidays, hey, how's it going? You know, hope you're having a Merry Christmas. I'm still working on it, you know. Or if I had an uh, award or something, I would email her and say, hey, I got this award, you know, for the, the novel, you know, just you know, FYI, so you know, she was really sweet. and She would reply, oh, great, great. You know, I'm looking forward to it and whatnot. So just to keep that communication open.
0: Gotcha. And so when you finally send it to her, uh, she says, yes, this is the book I've always been waiting for. Let's do this immediately. Or is there a period of waiting? And she says, hey, let's do a little few revisions. How does that look? What does that look like?
1: She said, yeah, there's some little things that I want to revise. You know, it shouldn't be much. So um, we did a little bit of revisions, which took, took about a month, I'd say. So come February, that's 2020, that's when she said, okay, are you ready? Are you set? And I said, yeah, let's do it. You know, it was mid-February and off it went to, to the world to uh, 12 uh, editors. And of course that's when COVID just slammed New York City. So, you know, I'm like, my life, you know, I wait all these years, <laughs> the month that goes out, that's the one that everything comes down, of course. But uh, so it was hard to listen, get back feedback or, or phone calls from any of the editors because they were all gone. All the offices were shut and uh, nobody was getting back to anybody. And so, but Sourcebooks, uh, Molly Kusick is the one that, that um, responded and said, yes, you know, she was interested. So I said, okay, there's one person. Uh, and finally, the other editors started coming back and saying no, not right now, we already have somebody else, we have something similar, you know, you, everyone came back with that, and I believe Scholastic came back saying they were very interested, and, uh, and I believe it went to two of their rounds, and it was approved, and finally for the third one, I think they had to um, say no, because uh, of the uh, layoffs that were starting to happen in Scholastic, and uh, they didn't want to take, you know, new writers at that time. They were, it was uncertain times, you know, uncertain times for everybody, so it, it broke my heart at the time, because Scholastic, you know, I, I grew up seeing the big Scholastic sign at book fairs and whatnot, but I think the universe lines up for a reason, all the plans line up for a reason, and, and I am so excited that I ended up with source books, and because Molly was just a wonder to work with. Uh, and I couldn't asked for a better editor. She, she had such a passion for that story. And I love that, you know, we fit off each other, you know, the ideas and the, that same passion just was wonderful. And then the rest of the team, oh my goodness, I was just blown away by the the marketing team, the uh, art department. And it's it just, it's a wonderful publishing house. And I'm, I count my, my lucky star that I, I ended up there.
0: And I, another shameless plug, Molly Cusick was, was on here for episode 32, uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll put a little extra incentive. Uh, that was relatively early on in the run of this show and I was you know, learning on the job as we go. I think I asked Molly at least two awkward questions that I haven't asked any editor since because Molly was good enough to, to give me a reason why I should not ask such awkward questions. So well worth your time esteemed audience. You're going to hear a phenomenal editor. You're going to hear me put my foot in my mouth. What a wonderful time episode 32. Um, uh, episode 32 for her, episode 64 for Avi, but my God, uh tonight, all the P Dobbs, my 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 cup runneth over. The left, <laughs> uh, <continues. laughs>
1: hey, no, no, I remember doing uh, I had seen Molly before in her show, and I remember when I saw her name, I, I I'm like, I remember, I remember that episode, you know. So I had to go back and rewatch, it. I saw that one probably like 10 times in one day. <laughs> And I was and like, "Oh, was he the really just
0: asked that." Oh my gosh, why do they let him do this?
1: You did a great job.
0: Well, let's talk uh, at long last. By God, Molly is listening. Uh Joe Peckett's listening. Joe Paquette, you're welcome on the show any any time. Um, they're listening and they're thinking, are they gonna talk about the book? Let's talk about the book. Uh, my promise to you was I would not make you sit through a, me summarizing your book. So what does esteemed audience need to know about Barefoot Dreams of Petroluna?
1: Well, Barefoot Dreams of Petroluna, oh, oh just in case you didn't see that big, big uh, thing in the back right there. It's uh, it's based on my great-grandmother's stories and, and my grandmother's stories because both women live these, Childhoods that were full of uh, poverty and hunger and injustices. And those were stories that I wanted to include in the characters and in the themes of Petra Luna. And uh, Petra Luna is a 12 year old girl. Her father, her mother died the previous year and uh and she's stuck you know or not stuck but she's got her younger siblings with her now that she's got to take care of and and feed and whatnot because her husband her husband (laughs) here we go her father has been conscripted by the federalists so he's been taken away and right before he's dragged away uh she makes a promise to him she makes a promise that she's going to take care of uh, the two siblings and her grandmother keep them safe while he's he promises to come back, you know, he's going to go out to fight with the federalists, which he hates, but he has to do it. Otherwise, you know, they'll execute him because a lot of men were executed. They didn't join the federalists. So he wants to spare Petra that pain. So he joins, but as Petra promise him that she'll take care of them. So she makes that promise. He promises to return. But as they're, when they're waiting for him, that's when the village gets attacked. And they have to flee. She has to flee with her siblings and her grandmother who you know has wobbly knees and achy bones and can barely walk. So they cross the desert and have to make it a safety. and all the while, she has this desire to learn how to read and write. And even though most people like her don't see the need for it, she thinks differently. She says, no, this is what I want and I want it in my life and for me and for my siblings so. It's a desire my grandmother had too to learn how to read and write. And and it pained her to be illiterate. And when she was 12, a little bit before she turned 12, she figured it out on her own, how to read and write. So to her, that's one of the biggest accomplishments uh, in her life as a child.
0: So who is the ideal reader for this story?
1: Uh, This book is uh, ideally for nine to 12-year-olds. And I've been told because of the the themes it has with war and whatnot, that all the children are enjoying it as well. Uh, That's what I've heard from librarians and booksellers, uh, reviewers. So uh, ideally, it's for the middle grade, uh, upper middle grade. But um, I had this gentleman reach out to me from Alabama, uh, a white male, and he said that uh, he said it was a book he would have probably never picked up if he saw it in the bookshelves. But somebody told him, hey, this is a good story, you, you should read this one. So he sat down and read it and he said he was just mesmerized. He, he enjoyed the story, he enjoyed learning the background, you know, because there's so much of the, of the war of the political and cultural climate that's, that the book covers that he said it made him understand current crisis right now. And also 20 years ago, he used to travel to Mexico a lot and talk to the workers there. And uh, didn't understand certain things, but this book, he said that that just enlightened me. I understood why you know they lived the way they lived and everything. So uh, to me, that was a big compliment. You know that that he enjoyed the book and he started recommending that you know and stuff like that, saying, "Hey, if you don't, you might not want to pick up this book if you saw it in a bookshelf, but it's a good book." So you know, I, I enjoyed that he he gave me that compliment. <laughs>
0: Oh, it's uh, thoroughly enjoyed by uh, grown men who call themselves ninjas. I understand. It's <laughs> <laughs> wonderful reader, everybody. Uh, I was curious because I know this is obviously this is uh, loosely based on on your great grandmother. This is based on stories you grew up hearing. Is there an ideal reader within your family uh, that you're hoping is going to read this and say, yes, Alda, Alda nailed it? She did it.
1: Oh, that's a good one. I'd probably say my mom, because <laughs> my mom's the one who would share most of the stories with me. And, uh, and the thing is that uh, she doesn't speak English. Uh, she speaks a very little and could read a very little. She read the prologue. Uh, it took a while to, you know, go through it and whatnot, but she understood it and she loved it. You know, I, I, she cried and whatnot. And she said she couldn't wait to read the book. So um, in January, Sourcebooks, uh, It has a translation right so they hired me to do the translation as well and I'm like because I wanted to do it. I wanted to give it that that flavor that northern Mexican flavor and uh, and I can't wait for my mom to to read that you know I that's what I like I said she's the one that shared most of the stories and I it's a it's a love letter to her and, and my family.
0: Well, if you're doing the translation and you're uh, finishing up, hopefully, book two now, can't you just go ahead and start the translation while you're at it, and <laughs> save some time?
1: Yeah, every now and then, when I want to take a break, sometimes you know I'll sneak over there and start trying to translate, you know. So it, it's my my break right now. Come January, yeah, I may have to get serious about it and, and do more. But uh, but yeah, it's, it's exciting to uh, be able because it's different. It's uh, some things are translated straight, you know, right, uh, in a direct way, but some of them are not, you know, so you got to find that balance and and keep the, the lyrical language in Spanish, you know, going.
0: So is that then you sitting there uh, agonizing over a new metaphor when you already came up with the perfect metaphor? Or is
1: it... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, now I to find that the thesaurus in Spanish and use <laughs> the and uh, heck out of that.
0: Uh, and then I was curious um, if, and I know your, your great-grandmother uh, is not around to, to be able to read this book, but supposing that she were or you meet up in the afterlife and she says, good news, I've got your book, read it a while ago, enjoyed it very much. Um, I, I like the idea of a heaven where everyone is reading the books that we're writing. Still, <laughs> that's that's my idea. Of heaven. They're they're fans of us up there. They're they're reading our novels as we speak. But but imagine in this in this scenario, you meet up with your great grandmother and she has read the story. What would you want her reaction to be?
1: I w- I wish she she would realize just how how uh, amazing her life was, how her resilience, her her bravery, how much I admire it, and and all these people that are starting to read the book admire it, too. I know she would probably be humble and probably do this, like, ah, no, it's no big deal, you know, but that's what I see her doing. I, I could see her doing this already, you know, and just... know kind of come she'd always smile and put her hand over her her mouth you know very very timid but yeah she she wouldn't believe it It there's like no way there's no way you know that a a book would be written about this so that's what that's what i think she would say
0: well that brings me to a question you're obviously not an objective observer uh uh, you know these are uh, almost legends i assume that have been passed down to you've been hearing these Mm -hmm. these stories Uh, They're your family members. So how do you approach Petra in a way that's going to give her some faults, give her some flaws to make her a compelling character? Um, How do you do that without uh, lionizing her? And in a way, even though it's it's a fictional account, lionizing Mm -hmm. your your grandmother as well?
1: I think at that point, when I put the flaws in, that's when I come in, (laughs) that's when I put myself in (laughs) the book. And and I did that because Petra is at odds with her grandmother because they're both from different generations and view the world differently. And my mom and I were the same way. We are both immigrants, but the fact that we're from different generations, we saw things differently. And for instance, she, when I graduated high school, I was the first in my family to ever graduate high school. And. she was really excited and and supportive you know she she was happy and she said okay you could get a great job now and that's it We're, we're good to go and i said no 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 i want i want to do college you know and join the military and she said what for you know what's what's the need and i said well you know i could get a better job there's there are more opportunities if i do that and and she was kind of reluctant and finally she said okay you know so i did that when I wanted to start grad school, she just said, okay, why, you know, there's, there's really no need for grad school, you know, you, you've already have a, a diploma, a college diploma, what else, you know, that's more than your family ever had beyond, and I said, well, you know, I just feel there's more opportunities with a master's degree and pursued that, so I'm glad I stopped there, you know, I didn't go for the PhD, otherwise it would have been another, another uh, dilemma there, but, but I wanted to put that same conflict, you know, with Petra, that she has that conflict with her grandmother, and at times she was upset about it, but there's so much to learn from her grandmother, too, because her grandmother brings the wisdom, and the strength, you know, from that generation, and it's the same thing with my mom, you know, there's a lot of wisdom she brought into my life as well, and so much wisdom, and now, you know, I was able to write a book <laughs> from it, so, so yeah, that's, that was Something I put in there, you know, to make uh, patronatus. Like I said, I realized, like I, I did with my grandma, and even my grandmother was the first one. Like I said, she had the desire to learn how to read and write. And her mother was a little reluctant too about, okay, do you really need it? You know, it's not, we've been doing it, you know, without without it for years. So why would you need to do it now and or learn it now? So.
0: Let's see, and then I wanted to talk a little bit about research, because you've got like three different librarians that you've thanked uh, mm-hmm. in the acknowledgements. Uh, I'm assuming you were not alive in, in
1: 1913. You've <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, got really,
0: family, cool. family photos. How do you go about recreating this world for you, for yourself and then for the readers?
1: It was a lot of research. Uh, first, like I had done research with academic books, a lot of them were historians, they were um, anthropologists who had been there in Mexico, and uh, they, they did fabulous work to, to study the culture. And I also, uh, something that helped me were the newspapers, of course, you know, that I came across the the, the day-to-day in and out of the Mexican Revolution and how it was affecting the United States. I learned a lot from that. Mm -hmm. And there's some books that uh, were published by journalists who were there, uh, who uh, actually traveled with the rebels, with the rebel army, and interviewed a lot of the rebel soldiers. Um, So I used a lot of those, uh, they inspired a lot of the scenes and characters. And there's also memoirs by, women who were part of the rebel forces who who gained ranks of of captain and lieutenant and general and uh and i was able to incorporate that those uh those stories too into the the book and uh, yeah i have family stories but the the photographs were another big piece of the of the puzzle a lot of the photographs i have one if i don't know if you follow me i'm not gonna ask that but (laughs) i have an instagram account that i just opened i'm so proud of myself because i'm not I'm not a big social media person, but about a few months ago, I I, uh, created an Instagram account and lately I've been posting the photographs that most inspired me uh, during the research. And I have one in particular that is my favorite one that shows four ladies, they're dressed elegantly, they have their silk dresses, long silk dresses, and they're walking arm in arm, all four of them. And opposite to them walking the opposite way are two women uh, it's actually a woman and a child. They're both both barefoot, wearing ragged clothes. And, and as you see them, you know, they're dressed like my great grandmother would have been dressed. And as they're about to cross each other, the picture captures a moment where the girl with the silk dress towards the, the edge, you know, that's facing the, the, the poor uh, woman and child walking by. You can see her hand as she's reaching to her skirt and pulling it in like she doesn't want it to touch the, the woman and child. And you can see this expression on her face, like her her nose is about to wrinkle. You know, she's looking at them like, oh my goodness, here they come, you know, and you can see that. And it captures it, that that instant, you know, is captured there. And one of the girls too looks at them. So you can see them looking. The other ones are looking at the camera, you know, they they have those carefree smiles, but the other two look at the woman and child and it's not a look of sympathy, it's a different look. So there were so many photographs like that, that I was able to break down and analyze the body postures, the face expressions, and what was happening not only what the lens captured at the center, but also the peripheral, the people around it and how they were observing that story happening in the, during that photo shoot. So a lot of that, that one inspired a scene in the book. So uh, yeah, photographs to me were a treasure trove just from gathering data for for
0: the story. I've seen the photo and I remember the scene. Um, I did not follow you on Instagram. I did follow, I believe I followed you on Twitter. I'm I'm phobic of Instagram. I have an account. Don't follow me on there, esteemed audience. You will never hear from me. I never log on to it. Uh, But for esteemed audience who wants to see the photo, where can, how should they follow you on Instagram? What's your?
1: On Instagram, I think it's, you say with an ad, right? (laughs) Add all the pdops, so <laughs> there you go. That sounds
0: plausible to me.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, I just learned it, so I'm, I'm still learning. Twitter, I, I don't even do that yet. I'm, I'm too scared. Oh, maybe later, but not, not yet. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I've taken Twitter and Facebook off of my phone. I log on to them a couple of times a day on um, the laptop. I have set times now because um, mm-hmm. I learned that somewhere during the pandemic. You know what's not cheering me up? Social media. Get off of there. <laughs> so I go on there to see what my author friends are up to, promote <laughs> the show, and then I'm out. Like, oh, that person I used to respect has crazy vaccine theories. No, no, no. Close it. I don't want to read it. <laughs> um, we are not we. You. You were talking uh, about war uh, in this novel. Um, there's a heartbreaking scene uh, right up front. I don't think it's a spoiler where uh, we're afraid that, that Petra's father is going to be executed and she's running toward him. Um, the Federales are nasty folks and you don't sugarcoat what they're up to. That's mm-hmm. why I'm, I've been trying to picture this as, as a picture book. I'm like, I, Maybe. <laughs> I don't know. I, it would have to be a a drastically modified version of the story, I would, I would think. Um, but even with the middle grade, you don't want to you don't want to f- present a false reality. You don't want to betray um, the the truth of war um, and and disrespect those who lived through it. But at the same time, you're writing for younger readers. Um, what? Uh, how do you approach a subject as 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 traumatic and dark as war for younger readers?
1: It was it was a challenge trying to do that because uh, you don't see any fiction books uh, for children about the Mexican Revolution, so there's no nothing for me to follow on that that end. Uh, but uh, something that uh, that helped me was uh, reading other books that talked about war, middle grade books that, that did it. So for instance, I had one scene that in the middle of the book that gets really, it's really a a sad moment, a a dark moment for Petra. And uh, I remember when I started writing that scene, I had just uh, finished reading uh, Stephen King's novel uh, Misery. <laughs> so you can only imagine what was going in my head. So when I wrote that scene and gave it to my husband, and my husband said, whoa, no, 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 put the cement king down and rewrite the scene because this is very, you're ready for children. I said, oh yeah, I remember rereading it. I said, yeah, it's, there's better ways to do this, you know. So I remember going over to Avi again, um, his um, book, Crispin, and then uh, Lois Lauri, Number of the Stars, and uh, different books that um, talked about situations like that, death and war and and just reading them and seeing how they mastered that, you know how to present that for children. And I was just mesmerized how, you know like they say, less is more. You know, you just gotta pick the right words and the right timing to convey the message. And that's plenty, you know, you don't have to describe every gory <laughs> detail. So I went back and rewrote the scene over and over until finally I was able to get it to that point. Like you said, I had to let kids know what, how it was and the reality of it. But you know, there's a certain way and certain words that, that you could express the same the same situation.
0: Uh, and then um, I've got uh, some other questions for you, uh, but I'm watching our time and I know it's, it's slipping away. Before we move on uh, from Barefoot Dreams of Petroluna, Um, a relatively lazy question that I still like to throw out there because I've I've always envisioned this as a show that if I were gonna be on a show, how would I want that show to be? Uh, And I would like to have a blank space personally. So I try to make that available for you as well. What is a question you wish someone uh, had asked you about this book? Uh, So let's pretend I ask it and then you go ahead and answer it.
1: Oh my goodness, that's a good one. Oh, it's gonna take me a minute here to think.
0: Free space.
1: Huh. Hmm. <laughs> Let me see. You know, I've never been asked that so I've been asked a lot of questions, but not that one. Let me see. Mm.
0: I can ask you a small one why you think, if you like.
1: Yeah, give me, give me. <laughs> I mean, I have to put that in the back burner of my brain. I I guess I have only oh, certain neurons available. Chapter titles in Spanish. The title in Spanish, you said. I'm
0: sorry. Uh, chapter titles. Uh, I noticed were were in Spanish. I was just yes, curious.
1: They uh, were. They were. Um, when I was typing them, it just inspired me to write it. Uh, I guess probably because at the beginning I have a um, a quote, a Mexican uh, dicho or a proverb. You know. that that I put at the beginning of the book. And that's one that I've always liked since I was a kid. And and, um, I'll read it to you in English and it says, I know in Spanish by heart, but (laughs) the translation is this, there's no curse that lasts a hundred years, nor a body that can endure it. And I like it because uh, it's been a hundred years, over a hundred years since the Mexican revolution and there's people that argue scholars that argue whether the mexican revolution really ended ever or not or if it's still going on right now so that's when it makes you put that into perspective you know the hundred years there's not a curse that lasts a hundred years you know well, is there you know is there not you know is it still going on so i put that quote for there because of that reason and that quote itself the fact that it was in spanish later on it just felt, you know, like that was a direction I should take to name the theme of each chapter in Spanish. I just, I felt it gave it a, a flavor. So, and more so because they're in Mexico. But it may change now that they're in America for book two.
0: Oh, so we'll have English titles and Spanish text? <laughs> well, certainly at least one edition since you're doing the translation.
1: All right. <laughs>
0: Would, uh, did I buy you enough time to think up a question or shall we move on to talk about writing habits and flying saucers?
1: Oh, well, I was going to talk about, I, I looked at my pens and I said, oh, maybe if somebody asked me, do you handwrite or, you know, or do you type on your story? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I guess my, my thing would be is that I, I love to brainstorm with paper and pen. I, I can't do it typing at all. It has to be paper and pen. Uh, when I brainstorm and I feel like it, I feel like there's more freedom in a page, in a physical page when I just jot down, upside down, spin it around, circle it. I feel like it's almost a dance, you know, so I get to do that and I can't do that in the typewriter. So once I have the brainstorming or notes or dialogue or characters, uh, even, you know, drawing, trying to draw the characters, which I'm not gonna show because I'm no artist by, by any means, but, Sometimes I do that, and that's something I can't do with my, my laptop.
0: One day scholars are going to track all that stuff down and put it in the older P. Dobbs official library, where it will be available. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I love, I used to do all handwriting for the, uh, uh, for the, the, the plotting and the, the planning and then sit down and type, um. But then I, I got to the point where I just couldn't read my own handwriting anymore. <laughs> yeah,
1: I haven't read mean, too sometimes. Like, oh, what, what does this say? I can't believe it.
0: <laughs> I haven't handwritten anything uh, other than just basic notes or maybe a grocery list in years now. Really? Oh my goodness! <laughs> everything I have to put on the phone, uh, say it ain't so. So, okay, what does your uh, writing day look? I know you're a big proponent of you believe writers should write every day. So what does that look like? And what if I only write five words, one sentence per the day? Does that count as her having written that day?
1: I, I think it does. In my opinion, writing every day, it could be anything. It could be you doing the dishes and thinking of scenes in your head and thinking of the dialogue you would use and putting characters in this way or that way or in a different room. And to me, that's writing. You're using those creative juices and whatnot or thinking of the dialogue. I, I do that a lot when I'm driving or listening to a book on craft. I think that's a good exercise too. I, I do that a lot. Or just reading, you know, reading somebody, else, somebody else's work. That in itself, I think is also a form of writing if you're analyzing, you know, the, the material as well. But as long as you do some of that every day, you know, and yeah, the, it's nice if you have the time to sit down and actually jot down words, that, that's gonna help you a lot too. But if you do write a paragraph and the next day you find your short time in your memory, refer back to that paragraph and try to rewrite it in your your mind, you know, and you'll see that sometimes it comes out better, you know, with you just thinking about it to the point that it'll come better to me at certain line of dialogue that I keep repeating to myself trying to make it better. And I have to put the dishes down and dry my hands quickly and go write it down somewhere before I forget, because, you know, it's, but I'm constantly in my head, you know, I'm in the shower and I'm thinking about it, I'm, I'm waking up and I'm thinking about it, so it's always something that's in my, in my head. Uh,
0: Do you have, when you're, do you keep a regular schedule of, I'm going to write from this time to this time every day, or? I you're laughing at me. That doesn't seem
1: like that. <laughs> I wish. I wish. I mean, I that's the bad thing that when you're starting out and that first book, you have that luxury of time, you know, you just you just waltz, not waltz through it, but you have a lot of time to revise and rethink it and revise and whatnot. You have beta readers, you have mentors, you have critique uh, partners and whatnot. And then you submit it, sign the contract, and also you have a deadline for book two. And it's a set deadline, it's a hard deadline. So, so now you're under the clock to write that second book. You don't have that luxury of, okay, you know, today I'm gonna do this or today I'm gonna no, now you gotta write. So so that's what I've discovered now, that now when they tell me this is due, yeah, I gotta make time for it or figure out how I'm gonna do it. And I wish I could tell you that, yes, I I write from this hour to this hour, but uh, I don't have two small kids, and with COVID, you know, I had to homeschool, and that, the dynamic that changed to try to uh, make time, you know, a certain schedule, so I wrote whenever, you know, they're playing, if they're quiet for the time, that's when I sneak out and start writing or whatnot, Uh, same thing now, now that they're back in school, this is the first time they're back in school, so... I'm starting to get into a routine and and I'm forcing myself because I don't have a deadline. So uh so yeah, I push my writing first, edits or whatnot, and then I have the launch coming out. So if my edits are done, then yeah, I go into the marketing, okay, how to promote the book, how to learn that. And hopefully, once edits and launch are done, then I could focus on other projects. I'm hoping. I have in some a couple of picture books in mind and a YA. So I'm hoping little by little I could get time for those so I could start learning that that magic of uh, picture books. So we'll see.
0: Uh, during a pandemic, I got a an email a couple of weeks ago now. it uh, uh, was, was a nice, a very nice email from a reader. Uh, and they asked me where's where's Banneker Bones for? When when can I look forward to that? And I'm like I was homeschooling a seven-year-old while I was finishing Banneker 3. You don't know how close it came to you not getting that book. There's, <laughs> we're gonna have to read a long time before there's a Banneker Bones 4. Sorry, buddy.
1: No, <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. I mean, that's the way, I mean, especially my kids, both of them, I had two of them that were in homeschool. And for each one, I had about five, seven different apps for one for math, one for reading, one for story time, one for science social studies and and each app had a different password and they couldn't match the passwords because <laughs> somehow they knew they were you know, it was me so they would let me do the same username the same password and even between their accounts either so it was just chaos i was just losing my mind so um but yeah i i'm here I'm, i can't believe it it's almost launched launch uh day for me I'm, I'm here i didn't think i was gonna make it this far but <laughs> i'm here
0: <laughs> Well, you're going to have a tremendous launch for uh, for Barefoot Dreams, and then you're coming back strong with book two next year.
1: And then it sounds
0: like you've got plans for, I mean, obviously, you got to get book two and the translation and, and continue to homeschool the kids and all of that. But when that's done, <laughs> sounds like you've got plans to, to stay within YA and middle grade writing, you think, or are you going to maybe try some other genre?
1: Uh, I do have ideas here and there flowing, but mainly they're all middle grade. Um, majority are middle grade, and I have a few picture book and a couple of wives but middle grade is my favorite age. I, I just love that age. You know, it's, it's that, you know, in between, you know, being still with the family, but trying to get that independence. And I think it's such a marvelous age when they're learning how to become independent, how to... How to detach and uh, be on their own. So it's it's beautiful.
0: I agree, a hundred percent. Obviously, and I should clarify just in case there's any doubt. Any doubt for esteemed audience? I know that there are some people that ask a question like that, like. When are you gonna write a real book for adults? That is never the written which I mean that question. I like books for adults, but middle grade books, that's the real books. <laughs>
1: so
0: with what you're doing. That's you're doing God's work.
1: <laughs> yep. <laughs>
0: Alder P. Dobbs, while you were an engineer in the Air Force, I assume at some point they pulled you aside and said, look, this is recovered alien technology. We need you to reverse engineer this for us. I'm assuming that happened, and you can't tell me.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I would have to. I have to kill you if I told you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I don't know, depending on what you told me. Maybe that's a <laughs> practical But Oh, it's beautiful. It was worth it. I'm, I'm glad I know that. <laughs> Okay. I, no, I was
1: just, I was okay. a communications, yeah. I'm no. sorry. No, I said in the Air Force, I just said communications, nothing, nothing secretive, so <laughs> I was just a <laughs> calm guy.
0: <laughs> but have you I ever seen a ghost and or a flying saucer?
1: Not that I know of, no. <laughs> it's over or, no, I'm just <laughs> I'm joking, no. No, I don't think I've ever I've seen one, no, I no, I wish, but I, my book, I'm
0: sure I will one day. But. Fingers crossed. What well, watching the time and the audience doesn't know what a trooper you are, I'm getting to you after you've done an, an hour and a half previous uh, event on screen. And I so appreciate you you making time for me. And this, is, this has been just wonderful. I can't wait to share it with the world. Uh, my final question is always some variation of if you could go back to the start of your career, the middle of your career, whenever it would have been most useful to you and give yourself some advice that would have made your path easier. It might make easier the paths of everyone watching or listening to us. What would you go back and tell yourself?
1: I would say, follow your heart, you know, follow your passion. Don't, whenever like think people tell you, right? If you follow your passion, you love what you do, it's not work just because you love it so much. And I truly believe that. And, I say that because physics was my my passion, I loved it a lot and, and during the time when it came to deciding what I would do for grad school, I wanted to pursue physics but uh, I saw the job market that there wasn't much for physicists and I decided to switch to engineering because there's a better economy for engineering at the time. And hindsight, I should have stuck to what I was more passionate for and I, I did like engineering but physics to me the way you use your imagination for physics it's almost like writing you know you have to be very creative to picture a lot of the theoretical world around you and um and the same thing with writing you know I I always liked the confidence and and I had that in my heart that I wanted to write I wanted to tell stories and it was just that lack of confidence that uh not believing that I could do it and whatnot that I figured, no, it's too much of a risk, you know, but if you, I had that in my heart, you know, had I listened to it earlier, you know, could have, would have, should have, right, but it happened and now I'm here, but yeah, that's something I would have told myself before, follow your heart, you know, don't be afraid, don't be afraid to follow your heart. You know, you might think, well, what if, you know, and whatnot, and yeah, they could plan out, they could plan out or something else happened. You know, I took a job in engineering thinking it was secure and then 2008 happened and guess what? It was insecure anymore. So now I'm stuck with <laughs> something I don't feel passionate about and something that I may lose anyway. So had I just stuck with it before, you know, when you have passion, doors open for you too. So that's something to keep in mind.
0: Where can esteemed audience find you online? Find you on follow you on social media and all that good stuff.
1: Sure, uh, you can find me at www. Um, do I still say www? At all the <laughs> That's old fashioned saying www. Um, or you can find me on Instagram at
0: um, backslash backslash.
1: Let <laughs> <laughs> say the <laughs> Um The I guess uh, how do you say at? all the p dubs that's for my instagram and in facebook it's going to be all the p dubs as well so and there you'll find playlists too if you want to hear music of, Mex- of the mexican revolution I have a playlist there a spotify list that has about 10 12 songs that uh, are polka corridos and uh, waltzes from that era so it's a lot of fun you can throw a party with it
0: are those the songs you listened to while you were reading the book? They
1: are. Yeah, they're songs I grew up with, and then when I wanted to give up, <laughs> when I thought I couldn't anymore. I put them on, and it just motivated me. I said, "Okay, I, I got to do this for these people that were there that that gave up so much." So it's it's like it's a story for them, and and uh, just wanted to honor them.
0: I list for the second book.
1: I'm going, I'm working on one as well right now. So it's a good question, though. I'm going to try to see if I can compile it and, and put it into a playlist like that.
0: Gotcha. So if esteemed audience follows you on Spotify now, they can probably actively watch you build that, that second playlist, yeah?
1: Oh, yeah I, didn't, I didn't know you could do that. Wow.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I assume.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh, so I feel like somebody's watching me now.
0: <laughs> All my playlists are private. I have playlists assigned for the books, but I kept it be private because not your audience. Kanye West while I was writing Banneker Bones." Yes, I did. It was fine. <laughs> 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 always esteemed audience. Uh, follow me at Middle Grade Ninja, but don't bother looking for me on Spotify. I've hidden all that stuff. <laughs> 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 Dot com, read um, uh, interviews with uh, thousands of literary agents, authors, editors, Molly Husick, uh, Avi, all the best people. Um, purchase your copy of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees for free, and then purchase for money Banneker Bones and the Alligator People and Banneker Bones and the Cyborg Conspiracy. Uh, and God will that I'm alive. I'll see you next week. <laughs>